are listening to Radio Maria, Christian Voice in Your Home. We're now present the show, Jesus the Permanent Messiah, Judaism, Howard Roy Showman. Hi, this is Roy Showman, and welcome once again to Jesus the Promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic faith, or seen the other way around, that celebrates the completion, the fulfillment, the full realization of the promise of Judaism in the Catholic Church and her sacraments. First of all, I have gotten a little bit of feedback about the fact that uh, over the last few weeks, actually I think the last two consecutive Saturdays, had to be rebroadcast because I was um, away traveling. Actually, I think it was the last three weeks, um, giving talks and lectures in various places. And so I apologize for that. But I do also want to um, warn my listeners that um, June uh, is going to be uh, actually, there are going to be four rebroadcasts out of the five Saturdays in June. The only one that I'll be here for is June 15th. Uh, first, I'm leading a pilgrimage to the Holy Land for about uh, 12 days, and then I'll be back for a week. And then I'm going to uh, give uh, go over to Europe for two weeks to give a series of talks um, in and around London. So anyway, that's uh, a little apology in advance. Uh, although I do think the uh, I will choose the rebroadcast shows with a little bit of uh, judgment to try to make them particularly good shows. Anyway, on to today's show. Um, well, I decided to uh, talk a little bit about anti-Semitism, actually, and the role of the Jews and Judaism in salvation from a Catholic perspective and what it has to do with anti-Semitism. And um, in the inspiration for doing this is that I have a book that was written in 1939 by a French philosopher named Jacques Maritain, uh, who had, was a very, very, very interesting character. And uh, he was a very deep and uh, prolific philosopher. Needless to say, he published over 60 books. Uh, but he was also a convert, although in his case a convert from Protestantism, but when he was about 19 or 20 in university as a Protestant, this is before his conversion, he met a young Russian Jewish woman named Raisa, and they immediately became fast friends. Eventually they were to marry. But when they met, they took a vow, because they were both atheists at the time, they took a vow that to commit suicide together within a year if they did not find an answer to the apparent meaninglessness of life. So you could see how intense their thirst for the absolute was, their thirst for real meaning in life. And thank God, through the um, meeting, a, another very interesting personage of the early 20th century, Leon Blois, who actually wrote a book. I didn't only found this out after I published my book, Salvation is from the Jews, but he actually published a book in, I think it was 1890-something, called Salvationist from the Jews. So I didn't know that I had, had stolen the title from him until afterwards. But he was very involved with the Jewish question and had a tremendous heart for the Jews. And he um, was also a very uh, spiritually intense man. And immediately uh, Jacques and Raisa Maritain fell under his influence and were mesmerized and received the gift of grace, and they both became very fervent Catholics for the rest of their lives. So now, uh, jumping forward to 1939, um, of course, all of Europe was aflame with, quote, the Jewish question. Uh, Hitler came to power in 1933, and the organized extermination of the Jews in the extermination camps, if I'm not mistaken, believe I, I began, I believe, in 1939, although it might have been 1938, and um, the, the problem of um, the fact that Hitler and Germany wanted to make itself free of Jews, which was an attitude which then spread to other anti-Semitic uh, you know, populations in Europe, was obviously a, a very big issue. And so in that context, Jacques Maritain gave a lecture um, which uh, became this short book called um, A Christian Looks at the Jewish Question. And that's what I'm going to read from. I'm going to read from the part of it which deals with the um, 
spiritual roots of anti-Semitism. So, but it's really, you'll see why, you'll see why I find this so interesting and why I find it resonates so closely with, um, with my own understanding of the interplay between Jew and Gentile in the period between the first and second coming. So with that, let me just launch in to a reading from Jacques Maritain's A Christian Looks at the Jewish Question. The Divine Significance of the Dispersion of Israel. Let us take up the question of the dispersion of Israel understood in its ultimate significance. Whatever the economic, political, or cultural forms which cloak the problem of the dispersion of Israel among the nations, this problem is and remains in truth a mystery, sacred in character, of which St. Paul, in his Epistle to the Romans, gives us the principal elements in his sublime summary. Let me interject here and say that um, after reading um, Jacques Maritain, if I have time, I will turn to Romans 11 and tie in what Jacques Maritain writes here with Romans 11. He does a little bit in his text itself, but I'll go back to it to tie it in more. But let me just underline that although the phenomenon of uh, anti-Semitism can seem to be you know, related, as he said, to economic factors or political factors or cultural forms, um, all of which, in a way, play a role. They certainly, there's an external manifestation of them, especially in those days, by the way, in the 1930s, when the Jews were much less assimilated, and they looked different, and they dressed different, and they talked different, and they lived in their own separate world, and so forth. You can see why there there was the appearance that anti-Semitism kind of flowed from these economic factors or cultural factors. But in fact, the problem was and is and always will be until the second coming a mystery sacred in character. Its fundamental origin is the spiritual role of the Jews and it, the relationship of that role to Christianity and the relationship of that role to Christ and the unfolding of salvation history. Back to Meriton. If there are Jews among the readers of this essay, they will understand, I am sure, that as a Christian, I try to understand something of the history of their people from a Christian viewpoint. They know that, according to St. Paul, we Gentile Christians have been grafted onto the predestined olive tree of Israel in place of the branches which did not recognize the Messiah foretold by the prophets. Thus we are converts to the God of Israel, who is the true God, to the Father whom Israel recognized, to the Son whom it rejected. Christianity, then, is the overflowing fullness and the spiritual realization of Judaism. So you can already see why I love this text so much. Let me go through what I just read a little bit. Um, this is a reference in St. Paul in Romans 11. He has the image of the olive tree. The olive tree, the tree of salvation, was originally Judaism. The branches were the Jews. Some of those branches were broken off because of their unbelief but they were broken off to make room to graft in wild olive branches, which are the Gentiles. That's what he's referring to when he says, according to St. Paul, we Gentile Christians have been grafted onto the predestined olive tree of Israel in place of the branches which did not recognize the Messiah foretold by the prophets. Therefore, we are converts to the God of Israel, who is the true God, to the sun, uh, Christianity, then, is the overflowing fullness and the supernatural realization of Judaism. Exactly. Christianity is the overflowing fullness and the supernatural realization of Judaism. It's the fulfillment of Judaism. Back to the text. Referring to the Jews, his brothers in the flesh, to whom he expected to be anathema, St. Paul had such a profound and tender love for them, quote, we who are Israelite, excuse me, tender love for them, quote, who are Israelites to whom belongs the adoption as of children and the glory and the testament and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom Christ came according to the flesh. I'll just repeat that quote is from uh, Romans 9. Paul had such a profound and tender love 
for the Jews, quote, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as of children, and the glory and the testament and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom Christ came according to the flesh. He is simply kind of underlining here that the entire history of the relationship between God and mankind before the coming of Christ flowed through the Jews. And, in fact, even up through the coming of Christ, since Christ himself uh, came according to the flesh as a Jew. Back to, back to, um, I almost said Radisbone, but Meriton. Um, continuing, that P- St. Paul wrote that, If the loss of them be the reconciliation of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? For, continues the Apostle, I would not have you ignorant, brethren, of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own conceits, that a blindness in part has happened in Israel, until the fullness of the Gentiles come in, and so all Israel shall be saved. As concerning the gospel, indeed there are enemies for your sake, but as touching the election, they are most dear for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For as you also in times past did not believe God, but now have obtained mercy through their unbelief, so these also now have not believed for your mercy, that they also may obtain mercy. For God has consigned all to unbelief, that he may have mercy on all. I will talk for a moment about this, because I can't resist. This is really a central part of the mystery of why... God veiled the eyes of the Jews to the truth of Christ when he first came, that he wanted all people to go through a period of unbelief so that when they did come into the fullness of salvation, come into the church, it should be a sovereign act of the mercy of God. This is true of the Gentiles before the coming of Christ, that they were in a state of unbelief, a state of uh, out of relationship with God. So they could be free to come into the church immediately after Christ came, because they were in so doing going from a state of unbelief to a state of belief. But the Jews were in a state of belief, so they also had to pass through a state of disbelief, of unbelief, so that when they too came into the church, they would come from a state of unbelief to a state of belief, so that once again it would be a sovereign act of the mercy of God. Back to, to Meriton. Thus from the first Israel appears to us a mystery of the same order as the mystery of the world and the mystery of the church. Like them, it is a mystery lying at the very core of redemption. And we must say that if St. Paul is right, what is called the Jewish problem is an insoluble problem, that is, one without definite solution until the great reconciliation foretold by the Apostle which will resemble a resurrection from among the dead. Again, I, I'm just going to discuss, I guess, these, these paragraphs as I go through them. Um, there is a mystery. By the way, when, when Meriton is using the word Israel, he's using the word Israel collectively for the Jewish people. Uh, he's not referring to the nation-state of Israel, which, in fact, had not come into being yet. So when he uses the word Israel, he means uh, the Jewish nation, the Jewish people as a whole. So um, the Jews are a mystery, the, the, the Jewish nation, so to speak. Israel is a mystery of the same order as the mystery of the world and the mystery of the church. And like those mysteries, the mystery of the Jews lies at the very core of redemption. And as such, the Jewish problem is never going to truly be solved. There'll never be a true solution until the reconciliation foretold by St. Paul, that is the conversion of the Jews. As long as the Jews are in the state of disbelief, of rejection of Christ, there, the, the mystery of the Jewish people will remain in some sense as an insoluble problem, and their presence in the society of the world will be, um, let's say, awkward. Um, Meriton goes on to talk about that. 
Between Israel and the world, as between the church and the world, there is a superhuman relation. It is only by considering this triad that one can grasp even an enigmatic idea of the mystery of Israel. It seems to me that we have here as our sole guiding thread a sort of inverted analogy with the church. We realize that the church is not a mere administrative organization dispensing religion. According to its own teaching about itself, it is a mysterious body in which living bonds, in order to accomplish a divine task, unite souls with one another and with God. The church is the mystical body of Christ. Indeed, Jewish thought is itself aware that in a quite different sense, and, it's, and, it's an, and in its own way, Israel is a mystical body. The bond which unifies Israel is not simply the bond of flesh and blood or that of an ethico-historical community. A sacred and supra-historical bond, it is one of promise and yearning rather than of possession. In the eyes of a Christian who remembers that the promises of God are irrevocable and without repentance, Israel continues its sacred mission, but in the darkness of the world, preferred on so unforgettable an occasion to the darkness of God. Israel, like the church, is in the world and not of the world. But since the day when, because its leaders chose the world, it stumbled, it is bound to the world, prisoner and victim of that world which it loves, but of which it is not, shall not be, and never can be. Thus is the mystery of Israel understood from a Christian viewpoint. Uh, wow, let me, um, uh, let me go back through that and talk about it. Um, let me also just say, uh, I forgot to mention this before I launched in, that this is a live call-in program, and if you wish to call in, the number here is 866-333-6279 or 866-333-MARY, M-A-R-Y. And I'll try to keep an eye on the message board here to turn to any calls as they come in. But let me talk a little bit about the paragraph I just read, which is really the heart of Meriton's understanding. Um, <laughs> okay, the, the church is not, a, the Catholic Church is not just an administrative organization dispensing religion. It, uh, it is, in fact, a mystical body, and it is in fact the mystical body of Christ. The Jewish people are not just an agglomeration, a collection of individuals who happen to be Jews. The Jewish people is also a mystical body. So we have three mystical bodies, so to speak. We have the church, we have the Jewish people, and we have the world. As Meriton said, the bond which unifies Israel is not simply the bond of flesh and blood, or of an ethical and historical community, it is a sacred and super-historical bond. It is, it is in fact, a, the Jewish people, Israel, so to speak, constitutes a mystical body in some way parallel to the way the church consists of a mystical, uh, constitutes a mystical body, excuse me. Now, we know that the mystical body of the church is at odds, in some sense, with the spirit of the world. There it is. Uh, let's hope it's at odds with the spirit of the world. Uh, Jesus himself said that Satan was the prince of this world. We don't want the church to be in harmony with the spirit of the world. The, the church is the body of Christ that is in this world, but not of the world. In a somewhat parallel way, the Jewish people are a spiritual body that are in this world and not of this world. However, unfortunately, about 2,000 years ago, the Jewish nation chose the world over God in the person of Jesus. So it is in this kind of no man's land where it was meant to be, I can't even use the word meant because everything is within divine providence, but by its nature, it is not of the world. And yet it voted, so to speak, to be of the world rather than in the world, but not of the world, as the church is. So that is actually the heart of the predicament of the Jewish people, of, or of Israel, or of the Jewish nation, or however you want to call it. And as 
as Merton said, this is the mystery of Israel understood from a Christian viewpoint. Wow, I hope that was at least partly clear. I will continue with Merton, but again, um, I'm happy to take any calls here, 866-333-6279, should you have a question or a comment. And I will be taking a break about halfway through the show, as I usually do, which is coming up in about eight or nine minutes. And it's always uh, particularly graceful to call in during that break, because then coming out of the break, I'll just come to the calls, start with the calls, that is. Back to Merton. The communion of this mystical body is the communion of mundane hope. Israel passionately hopes, waits, yearns for the coming of God on earth, the kingdom of God here below, with an eternal will, a supernatural and non-rational will. It desires justice in time, in nature, and in the city of man. I'm going to have to interject again. This is really a major component of the the tragedy of Israel, so to speak, the tragedy of the Jewish people, which is it has a supernatural and non-rational will for the perfection of the world. That's clear from the Old Testament. That's, That's clear from the love of God, which was placed in the Jewish people. However, having rejected Christianity and Christ, it looks for the perfection of the world in time, in nature, and in the city of man, not in the city of God. So it's always looking for the perfection of the world in this world rather than outside of this world um, through the mystical body itself as the church has realized the kingdom of heaven on earth in the mystical body of the church, but not by perfecting life in this world. And I will interject something which is, this is an error that we see played out today, in some sense like never before, um, or at least over the last 70 years like never before, in the Catholic Church. Yes, it is, you know, we are obligated to perform spiritual acts of mercy, feeding the poor, clothing the naked, burying the dead, and so forth. Um, We are to exhibit the kind of charity and love of neighbor that Jesus exhibited while he was on earth. However, the point of that is the the love itself and the um, soul-to-soul transformation that takes place. We are not going to perfect life on earth. There's nothing the church can do. There's nothing that Catholics can do that is going to do away with evil on earth, that's going to do away with war, that's going to do away with sin, that's going to do away with lying and cheating and stealing and killing and so forth. Um, Especially, there's nothing that the Catholic Church or the body of Catholics, the mystical body of Christ on earth, can do that is going to succeed in um, creating a heaven on earth. doing away with war and conflict and injustice, poverty, and so forth. Jesus himself said, the poor you will always have with you. Yes, we are to aid them as much as possible, but we are not to look for perfection in this world. And so in a way, when, you know, when Catholics think that that is the point of the church, in a way they're making a mistake that's somewhat parallel to the mistake that Israel makes, that the Jewish people as a whole make. They're looking to perfect things in this world rather than looking to essentially sanctify souls in this world as much as possible and exercise charity and justice as much as possible in this world. But nonetheless, Jesus himself again said that the prince of this world is the enemy is Satan. He is not the prince of this world. He's the prince of the, the real world, so to speak. We have to pass through this world to get to the real world, that is heaven, and we have to bring as many others with us. Back to Meriton, because again, don't forget, he's talking about the Jews, so that was all a little bit of a digression. But he's talking about the Jewish people, and he says, with an eternal will, a supernatural and non-rational will, they desire justice in time, in nature, and in the city of man. So let's not us make the same mistake of desiring justice in the city of man rather than the city of God. Back to Meriton. So, like the world and its history, 
Israel and its action in the world are ambivalent realities because the longing for the absolute in the world can take all forms, some good, others evil. Hence the fact that, in the astonishing complexity of the forms it assumes, simultaneously pregnant with good and evil, there will always be found something to glorify and something to degrade Israel. Um, Anti-Semites speak of Jews, said Peguet. I am aware that I am about to speak paradoxically. The anti-Semites do not know the Jews at all. I know this people well. It bears on its skin no single spot which is not painful, where there is not some old bruise, some ancient contusion, some secret woe, the memory of a secret woe, a scar, a wound, a laceration of the Orient or of the Occident. Close quote. Um, let me uh, interject something once again. Uh, note that Meriton said, um, uh, Israel and its action in the world are ambivalent realities because the longing for the absolute in the world can take all forms, some good, others evil. Hence the fact that in the astonishing complexity of the forms it assumes, simultaneously pregnant with good and evil, there will always be found something to glorify and something to degrade Israel. So let me comment about that. Um, some of the most offensive things that are um, accusations against the Jewish people coming from anti-Semites, sometimes actually coming from Catholics, are truly evil things that came through Jews into the world through their misguided imagination that they could perfect life in this world. And of course, what I'm thinking of most dramatically is communism, is Marxism. Karl Marx, of course, was a Jew. Um, Anti-Semites blame the Jews for communism. In fact, Hitler's rise to power was very intimately linked to the correct association between Jews and communism. In other words, uh, some of Hitler's successful uh, rabble-rousing against the Jews were by claiming that they were communists and they were part of an international communist conspiracy to um, take over the world for communism. Uh, that's not entirely untrue. There was a disproportionate Jewish presence in early communism. As I said, Karl Marx, the founder of communism, was a Jew. And um, the Bolshevik Revolution had a Jewish element. Actually, the French Revolution had a, had a Jewish element. Um, and they're all an attempt, or they're all reflections of an attempt uh, to perfect life on this, in this world rather than understanding the relationship between this world and the real world. As Meriton said, they, they were the expression of a desire that is communism was the expression of a desire for justice in time, in nature, and in the city of man. So some of the most evil impulses which came through Jews and Judaism were actually misguided messianic impulses, so to speak. It was the, it was the urge to perfect the world, not understanding that that was through Christ and thinking that they had to take things into their own hands and that they could somehow transform human nature but through worldly means rather than through transformation in Christ. I really hope this makes sense to you. It certainly makes sense to me. But anyway, I see that I've already gone through half the hour, so it's time to take that short musical break. Again, if you wish to call at this point, I will turn to the calls coming out of the break. The number here is 866-333-6279 or 866-333-MARY, M-A-R-Y. You're listening to Roy Showman. Uh, the show is Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria, and I'll be back in a few moments. Hi, welcome back. Now, during the break, we did receive a call, but the caller did not stay on the line, but she asked a question. So before I go back to reading from Meriton and discussing it, I will uh, address her question briefly. She asked whether the Jews are still expecting the coming of the Messiah. And I would say the short answer to that is that only the most religious of the Jews, uh, 
I would say under 5% for sure of the Jews um, today are still expecting the coming of an individual person who is the Messiah. Um, This has been the case. They've been expecting the coming of a person who is the Messiah um, in some sense continually for the last 2,000 years, some percentage of the Jews. That percentage has gone down over time as as uh, basically secularism has taken hold and, and fewer and fewer Jews are seriously religious. But the uh, Orthodox Jews, the very Orthodox Jews, the very religious Jews, certainly the Hasidim, who are the Jews that you may see in, in urban centers and so forth, with the um, ear curls and the, um, the long beards and the ear curls, and, and very often uh, dressed in, in just black, black suits, um, they certainly uh, expect a personal Messiah. As a matter of fact, one of the tragedies is that a large number of them actually thought that their recently deceased uh, rabbi of one of the sects of Hasidim, the Lubavitcher Rebbe uh, Schneerson, was the Messiah. Some of them still actually think he was the Messiah and expect him to come back, which is very sad when you compare Rabbi Schneerson to Jesus Christ. Anyway... That's a topic for another show. Uh, but anyway, I would say a few percentage of the Jews are expecting the coming of a Messiah in, the, in a way parallel to the way the Jews did 2,000 years ago. The vast majority of the Jews think that the Messianic prophecies in Judaism and the discussion of the coming Messiah who will perfect the world um, had a more uh, corporate meaning. That is, that is the... It is the uh, role of the Jewish nation, of the Jewish people, to somehow be a light to the Gentiles, a light to the rest of the world, and to perfect life on earth. So this actually ties in very closely to what I was saying just before the break. And in fact, Karl Marx, who I mentioned, who was the founder of communism, his mentor was uh, um, Max Hess, I believe his name was. And he was a, a kind of a Jewish thinker who actually expounded explicitly that the messianic uh, prophecies in the Old Testament, the discussion of the Messiah, was actually a reference to the Jewish nation as a whole and its obligation to perfect life on earth. And you can see how that flowed very directly into uh, Karl Marx and his institution of communism as an expression of that desire to perfect life on earth um, in in a kind of uh, worldly way, anyway, and that's that's probably pretty much the most common Jewish interpretation of the expectation of the Messiah uh, nowadays. Except, as I said, for the very religious Jews. Anyway, um, good question, and um, that would make a good topic for a show: the messianic expectation in Judaism over time. But anyway, back to Meritam and uh, his discussion of the mystery of the Jewish nation in salvation and its relationship to anti-Semitism. It is not a question of deciding whether you find Jews attractive or repulsive. That is a matter of temperament. But have they a right to common justice and the common brotherhood of man? If men could tolerate each other only on condition of having no complaint against each other, all the provinces of every country would be constantly at war. The most curious fact, moreover, is that many anti-Semites declare that they have only praise for the Jews that they have known personally, but nevertheless feel hatred for the Jews as a sacred obligation, which is one way, among others, of paying tribute to the mystery of Israel we are now considering. Let me just emphasize that a little bit. I think it's a very interesting point that uh, Meriton is saying that Many anti-Semites actually say that they like the Jews that they know personally or have known personally, but they nevertheless feel a hatred for the Jews as a whole. And Meriton is pointing out, I think very correctly, that that in itself is an indication of some fundamental spiritual dynamic at work. And it's an indirect way of paying tribute to the mystery of Israel that we are now considering Continuing with Meriton, but what then is that vocation of Israel which persists in darkness and of which we were just speaking? First of all, there is its vocation as a witness to the scriptures. 
but more, while the Church is assigned the labor of supernatural and supertemporal redemption of the world, Israel, we believe, is assigned, on the plain and within the limits of secular history, a task of earthly activation of the mass of the world. Israel, which is not of the world, is to be found at the very heart of the world's structure, stimulating it, exasperating it, moving it. Like an alien body, like an activating ferment injected into the mass, it gives the world no peace, it bars slumber, it teaches the world to be discontented and restless as long as the world has not God. It stimulates the movement of history. Okay, I'm reading Meriton, remember, so I don't want to be blamed for any um, uh, radical uh, theology here. I'm just trying to explain what Meriton is saying. But it's, it's very, very interesting. He is actually saying that the Jewish people in the world in this period between the first and second coming in its own way act as a kind of indigestible yeast, a kind of a yeast in the massive dough that is a continual kind of stumbling block, a continual irritant that is stimulating, exasperating the world itself, moving it, so to speak, teaching the world to be discontented and restless as long as the world has not God. It stimulates the movement of history. Um, this is very interesting, right? Because you have the church that is in the world and not of the world, and the church is not really exasperating the world. It is leading the world. It is the light that shows the world the, the path to God. Um, the um, Israel, using that term in, in, with reference to the Jewish people, Israel is in a similar way and this, this alien body in the body of the world, rather than actually showing the path to God, it is, um, it is stimulating a kind of um, discontent with not having God, a kind of exasperation at the worldliness of being in the world. So it's kind of like the unsatisfied hunger for God that the Jewish people have becomes a stimulant for people not in the church to have a unsatisfied hunger and longing for God, to make them kind of aware that their discontent is, in fact, a frustrated longing for God. Um, I'm, reminded, <laughs> I'm reminded of Woody Allen movies, as I say that, because, because um, the angst, or actually the angst of Jewish comedy, when you think about it, um, it, I, I think this makes a lot of sense. I think that, that that unsatisfied Jewish yearning for God, which comes from the fact that they don't have Christ, is somewhat contagious. And it is actually uh, stimulating the world, that is, the w world that's not in the church, to have a similar kind of um, dissatisfaction with the world itself. Now I get to the um, where... Meriton explicitly addresses anti-Semitism. This uh, section is entitled The Spiritual Essence of Anti-Semitism. It seems to me that these considerations explain something of the spiritual essence of anti-Semitism. The diverse specific causes which the observer may assign to anti-Semitism, all the way from the feeling of hate for the foreigner, natural to any social group, down to religious hatreds, alas, that these two words may be coupled, and to the manifold inconveniences produced by some waves of immigration, mask an underlying spring of hatred deeper down. If the world hates the Jews, it is because the world clearly senses that they will always be outsiders in a supernatural sense. It is because the world detests their passion for the absolute and the unbearable stimulus which it inflicts. It is the vocation of Israel which the world hates. To be hated by the world is their glory, as it is also the glory of Christians who live by faith. But Christians know that the Messiah has already conquered the world. Thus, hatred of Jews and hatred of Christians spring from a common source, from the same recalcitrance of the world, which desires to be wounded 
neither with the wounds of Adam, nor with the wounds of the Savior, neither by the goad of Israel for its movement in time, nor by the cross of Jesus for eternal life. We are good enough as we are, says the world. We have no need of grace or transfiguration. We ourselves will accomplish our own happiness in our own nature. This is neither Christian hope in a helping God, nor Jewish hope for a God on earth. It is the hope of animal life and its power, deep and in a sense sacred, demonic, when it masters the human being who thinks himself deceived by the emissaries of the Absolute. Racial Tellurianism is anti-Semitic and anti-Christian. Communist atheism is not anti-Semitic. It is satisfied in being against God universally. In one as in the other, the same absolute naturalism, the same abhorrence for all asceticism and all transcendence is to be found at work. The mystical life of the world itself aims to blossom heroically, as it were. Every mystical body constituted apart from the world must be rejected as such. Okay, that's worth going through a little bit, or a lot. So, um, as Meriton introduced earlier, you have these uh, essentially like three mystical bodies. You have the mystical body of the Jewish people of Israel, you have the mystical body of the church, and you have the, uh, in some sense, mystical body of the world, the world, the world as it is. Um, the world itself, I, I wish I had a term for it. Um, let me see if... Uh, no, he, uh, Meriton just calls it the world, so I'll just call it the world. So the world hates both of these alien mystical bodies in it. It hates the alien mystical body of the Jews in the world, and it hates the alien mystical body of the church in the world. And it hates them. The, the hatred of those two comes from the same source, which is the desire to be sufficient unto itself. In other words, the desire to find fulfillment and the fullness of happiness in the world itself without turning to any transcendence, without the need for any form of salvation or any aid from outside the world. Now the Jews are looking for that aid to heal the wound of Adam in their expectation of the Messiah that will repair essentially the wound of Adam. And the church is, um, is, is looking to that salvation through the wounds of Jesus. I am actually tying myself in knots there, so let me just reread those couple of sentences um, to, so that I don't destroy the clarity that Meriton expressed it with. The hatred of Jews and the hatred of Christians spring from a common source, from the same recalcitrance of the world, that is the same resistance or reluctance of the world, which desires to be wounded neither with the wounds of Adam nor with the wounds of Savior of the Savior, neither by the goad of Israel for its movement in time, nor by the cross of Jesus for eternal life. In other words, the world does not want to be bothered in its worldliness, does not want to be disturbed in its worldliness, either by the demands of Israel, so to speak, the dissatisfaction of Israel with the world and the desire of Israel for perfection of the world uh, to repair the wound of Adam, nor by the demands of the cross of Jesus for eternal life. Uh, back to Meriton, we are good enough as we are, says the world. We have no need of grace or transfiguration. We ourselves will accomplish our own happiness in our own nature. Of course, both um, the teaching of Israel, so to speak, and the teaching of the church contradict that. We ourselves will not accomplish our own happiness and our own nature. We need outside help. We need the grace of God. The Jews are looking for that grace of God. Uh, Judaism, let me rephrase that. Judaism is looking for that grace of God in the future coming of the Messiah. And Christianity is looking for that grace of God, actually has that grace of God, in the, ha uh, in the fact that Christ came and in the relationship with Christ and in the transformation in Christ and in the salvation through Christ. Back to Meriton. This is neither a Christian hope in a helping God 
nor Jewish hope for a God on earth. In other words, the world does not want to be bothered with either a Christian hope in a helping God nor in a Jewish hope for a God on earth. What this leaves the world in is, in fact, a state of an animal life. Um, it is the hope of an animal life and its power, deep and in a sense sacred, and in fact demonic, when it masters a human being who thinks himself deceived by the emissaries of the absolute. And of course, we see this very virulently uh, today in the New Age, when the theology, so to speak, of much of the New Age is in fact that we are God, that our animal life is in itself sacred, when in fact what it's doing is introducing a demonic element into our, our souls in... in um, um, I, mm, words fail me, because there aren't the words, in making sacred the animal. And they do that, right? They make sacred... Um, I don't want to go into details, but but it's not unrelated to sexuality. I'll, I'll leave it at that. Um, the um, in in both uh, the virulent racism of the Nazis is actually what uh, Meriton is referring to here. Uh, neither uh, um, both Nazism and communism in one as in the other, the same absolute naturalism the same abhorrence for all asceticism and all transcendence is to be found at work. The mystical... Um, uh, I'll, I'll, I, I see I have a question from a caller. I'll finish this, this paragraph and then I'll go to that question. The, the, um, the same abhorrence for all asceticism and all transcendence is found in both, that is, in both Nazism and in, both, and in communism. The mystical life of the world itself aims to blossom heroically, as it were. Every mystical body constituted apart from the world must be rejected as such. So you see, and this is actually true, you see it in, in the Nazis' um, kind of uh, perfection of the world through the Third Reich, the expectation that the Third Reich would, at least for them themselves, for the Aryans, would perfect life on earth. The mystical life of the world itself aims to blossom heroically, as it were. Out of, out of the natural life itself, there will be this blossoming of perfection. And every mystical body that's constituted apart from the world, that is, both Israel and the church, must be rejected as such. Wow. I have uh, just a couple of uh, uh, minutes to respond to this question from a caller from Florida. So let me read it. Um, are the people of Israel still going through a state of unbelief to believe? And if we get to go through something similar, do we have to go through conversion? Does it have to be Catholicism or could it be the Orthodox Church? Okay. First of all, yes. Um, obviously not the Jews who uh, believe in Jesus, but the vast majority of Jews today who don't believe in Jesus are in a state of unbelief. And they have to come, I don't mean they have to come, they have to come to a state of belief. That is, that is the intention of God as expressed in Romans 11, that um, when the full number of the Gentiles has come in, that is near the end of time, as the second coming is approaching, the veil will be lifted from the eyes of the Jews and they will enter en masse into the church, into belief in Jesus, and then they too, and thus they too will be saved. Paragraph 674 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church says, quote, The glorious Messiah's coming is suspended at every moment of history until his recognition by all Israel. It has been a teaching of the church since the very earliest days of the first century that before the second coming of Christ, there will be a widespread conversion of the Jews, that the Jews also had to pass through a period of unbelief before they get given the grace to believe, in order that when they do get the grace to believe, it's totally evident to them also that it was a sovereign act of the mercy of God that brought them into the fullness of salvation through Jesus Christ. Now, the second part of that question, does it have to be Catholicism or could it be the Orthodox Church? Um, uh, uh, as 
someone once said, that's beyond my pay grade. No, I wouldn't say it has to be Catholicism. Uh, the Orthodox Church has the valid sacraments. Um, and there have been prophecies that actually have suggested that it can even be through, that there, that there are three vehicles it can be through. It can be through the Catholic Church, it can be through the Orthodox Church, or it can even be through Protestantism. Um, I don't know the answer to that, but um, it is, um, I think it's clear that it has to be through coming to understand that Jesus Christ is the long-promised Jewish Messiah and is all of our Savior. This is not to say that Jews who don't come to faith in Jesus before they appear to have died are lost, are not saved. I'm talking about a, a corporate mystery of the Jewish people. In other words, I'm, I'm talking about the mystical body of the Jewish people as a whole. I'm not talking about individuals. The teaching of the Church, especially since Vatican II, has been very clear that anyone who seeks to be good and seeks to follow the will of God to the extent, to the fullness of the light that has been given them um, can be saved. So, anyway... With that note, I think I've come to the end of our time for our program. Uh, I hope this is, has been interesting, and I haven't even um, come to the end of, of Meritian's discussion of the mystery of the Jewish people, and as, as the title of the book calls it, A Christian Looks at the Jewish Question. So perhaps next week I will uh, start up again where I left off. For now, it's time to say goodbye. You've been listening to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria with your host, Roy Shoman. That's me. And I hope you join us again next week. Same time, same place. Bye for now.